This is the Faculty New Books Podcast, covering the arts, humanities, sciences and professional fields. Each week we invite a leading or emerging author to discuss their new work. So my book, British Literature and Culture in Second World War Time, uh, looks at fiction, photography, film and painting from the World War II period with a view to understanding how works of art captured the anxiety of living in a state of geopolitical crisis and how they conceptualize the idea of wartime at this historic juncture. I take the war beyond its usual temporal boundaries of 1939 to 1945 to argue that the temporality of the Second World War, which I call Second World Wartime, operates as an imaginary. It's a wartime that needs to be understood not only in terms of the dates of particular battles or skirmishes or treaties, but as a phenomenological experience or feeling of suspended time that one had to constantly grapple with. Now, all wars can be said to involve the experience of temporal suspension in some way while one is living within and through the event. But what differentiates the Second World War is just how long in advance one anticipated it. So from as early as the Versailles Treaty, as John Maynard Keynes understood in his 1919 book, The Economic Consequences of the Peace, and just how long that wartime seemed to endure. The full extent of its horrors continued to unravel long after VE and VJ Day, and arguably the end of the Second World War was the beginning of a chilly Third War, the Cold War. Overall, I hope that the book offers a more conceptual account of literature and culture than usual studies of those bleak mid-century decades. A main claim that I make in the book is that Second World War time is chronophobic, that it is defined by a profound fear or dread of time. Other critics have used the term chronophobia before, often to describe a fear of time's passage. But what I am charting here is a particular kind of late modernist chronophobia that evolved with a dread of both the past and the future together. Many writers and artists depict Second World War time as a return of sorts to the psychological traumas and mass death of the First World War. But World War II also promised these traumas on a different scale. Not only were there technological advances in weaponry, but fears of civilian mass aerial bombardment were widespread even during the 20s and 30s, when with the rise of fascism, it became increasingly clear that a second global conflict was looming. Aerial bombardment of innocence was viewed as the military strategy of the then future. So the Second World War was perceived to be a repetition with a difference as another world war, but one whose violence was yet unimaginable. The key to understanding late modernist chronophobia is that this temporal anxiety did not dissipate with the outbreak of the war. While some saw the war's arrival as a release of decades long pent up political tension, the phony war that followed, then the blitz after that, meant that one continued to dread the future. An aerial bombardment is itself a chronophobic military tactic. The blitz was a protracted period of nightly bombing where emergency and the fear of death were routinized, where one feared for one's safety again and again, where one expected and prepared for violence again and again. So chronophobia structured Britain's experience of the Second World War on multiple levels of duration, on the more macro level of the entire conflict, but on the level of the everyday as well. And with the atomic end of the Second World War and the mutation into the Cold War, wartime and peacetime started to share similar affective characteristics because peacetime also took on a kind of chronophobic anxiety as one feared a different kind of global devastation. The modernists focused on psychology and alienation and the theme of spatial and temporal dislocation, particularly in relation to the urban experience, are reincarnated in a very different way and in a very different context 
I think in particular of a modernist essay like Street Haunting by Virginia Woolf, which celebrated the metropolis as a site of ephemerality, liberating potential, where one could be free from the constraints of the past and how different street haunting would look by the end of the Second World War, when streets were pockmarked by ruins and in some instances, literally haunted, as is the case with Rose Macaulay's novel, The World My Wilderness, by centuries of ghosts newly awakened by bombing which uncovered historic sites. Second World War writing can be seen as an extension of sorts of modernist writing, but at the same time, it was very different too. There was considerable play with a genre, like the spy thriller of Graham Greene's The Ministry of Fear, which melded the popular suspense narratives of intrigue and espionage with modernism's interest in psychological fragmentation and with contortions in narrative time. And Green affects this through the plot device of a protagonist's amnesia, which is caused by a blitz bomb. To go back to my point about chronophobia though, there is a different relationship to the idea of duration. In modernist time studies, we tend to think of duration as la durée, Henri Bergson's idea of qualitative subjective time as recuperated from the inhuman objective time of the clock. In the late modernism of the Second World War, duration takes on the idea of enduring, of living or persisting in a mode of suspension without a clearly defined end, as in the phrase for the duration. Incidentally, that phrase originated from the First World War to refer to the undefined length of that conflict. So you can see why, again, Second World War time is a repetition with a difference. In the literature of the 1930s and 1940s, chronophobia takes on many forms, but in particular through a complex interplay between modes of anticipation and retrospection. Formally, in terms of the writing, this is often conveyed through narrative devices, such as flashbacks and flash forwards, and writing that shifts tenses constantly, or that uses particular tenses like the future interior. Some narratives indulge in the use of formulations like will have been or shall have been, which anticipate the act of retrospection but also suggest a sense of inevitability or belatedness. Texts that do this include Henry Green's Cot, where traumatic experiences like a child's kidnapping and a firefighter passing out while fighting blitzfires are often glimpsed in the narrative present as a future that has yet to, but will occur. Elizabeth Bowen's The Heat of the Day does something similar through a narrative syntax that bends over backwards in trying to convey the way past traumas arrest the present and in the way that the proliferated global nature of Second World War time meant that there were so many theaters of war that it was hard to describe any single temporality as isolated from another. The relationship between anticipation and retrospection looks different depending on the medium of the art or cultural work as well. Photographers, for instance, harnessed or exploited the temporal properties of photography to register the distinctiveness of this wartime. I was struck by how many journalistic photographs of the day fixated on the sight of stopped clocks, hands shocked into suspension by bomb blasts and shock waves. The photographic medium amplifies and plays up that idea of time ruptured, frozen, or suspended, since without captioning, we wouldn't be able to tell whether that clock has stopped indeed. A photograph of a ticking clock would look very much the same. So there's this ambiguity between stasis and flow in the form of a photographic image which offered a very evocative way of expressing the warped experience of time itself in war. Childhood themes formed a through line in mid-century culture, both before and beyond the Second World War for many reasons. Childhood and youth are often deployed as metaphors for a nation's potential and future. It's a favorite trick, for example, of the prime minister of Ireland post-independence when he repeatedly called the country young in its promise of future. But of course, childhood is also a very material, tangible concern 
In Britain, with war on the horizon, there was already a sense of a stolen childhood. And after war's outbreak, psychologists were very much concerned with war's effects on childhood development and maturation. Psychoanalysts who studied children at this time helped to concretize the fear surrounding evacuation in particular. Although it made practical sense to remove children from cities, which were going to be targeted by air raids and evacuate them into the countryside, there was also a widespread worry that extricating young children from stable homes and from the maternal figure would create deep psychological and emotional problems further down the line. Many of John Minton's paintings focus precisely on the figure of the broken child who is foregrounded against a background of ruin and devastation. And he asks what kind of socio-political future is being left for the next generation. Then towards the latter half of the war and into the early post-war period, Sociologists were concerned with the children who did grow up in the cities and with how an urban landscape of rubble and ruin filled with rampant weeds affected their upbringing. Orphan children lived among ruins and started forming their own sub-communities and surrogate families. And as petty crime rates went up among youth, sociologists became preoccupied with the idea of juvenile delinquency and its detrimental effects on post-war society and its recovery. Popular films by Ealing Studios, such as Hue and Cry, focus on this context of the new youth gang. It's filmed among rubble that has yet to be cleared away, emphasizing what John Barron Mays would later call the delinquency producing neighborhood. So children represented another way in which the future was represented as continually anxious, jeopardized or worrisome. We tend to have two models for understanding wartime in the 20th century, especially in relation to theories of total war. One is the First World War, which holds paradigmatic status as a world historical event of highly industrialized slaughter, daily death, grief, mourning. The second concerns that of the Cold War, which is also seen as uniquely formative, but for very different reasons. Characterized by the reluctance to engage in full confrontation, the Cold War was seen as a kind of peace because war was not based on hostilities, though there were certainly regional conflicts and proxy wars, war was still present but rather on the overall ability of America and the USSR to maintain the threat of mutually apocalyptic nuclear devastation. These are two kinds of modern wartime, both touted as unparalleled and all pervasive in their own way, even though they appear to be opposed to one another. My book, British Literature and Culture in Second World Wartime, asks what happens to the idea and experience of modern wartime in between these two models. And it argues that mid-century period is an important moment in the development of modern wartime. The Second World War stands at the fulcrum of a changing way of understanding war, from one with largely expected temporal boundaries to one without, from war as event to war as open-ended and everyday. Chronophobia is key to understanding why this is, and cultural production and narrative forms of the time provide an index into the distinctive experiences of this wartime. Looking at Second World Wartime literature and culture helps us to understand just how much the traumas of the First World War persisted long after, and just how much the experience of existential dread and anxiety, which are central to canonical understandings of the Cold War, were formed far before the latter began. You have been listening to the Faculty New Books podcast. Head over to Faculty for thousands of interviews and insights across the subject spectrum. Mm-hmm.